Hello and welcome to this episode of Flirtations Life to Tape. This is a podcast dedicated to classic stories and historical literature from around the world. These episodes will be the audio version of our visual audio series. To view our visual audiobooks, please visit our YouTube channel, Live to Tape, or you can like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash live to tape. Feel free to visit our website, flotations.com, and view the landscape, aerial, and time-lapse photography there. This podcast is presented ad-free, however, we rely on support from our listeners to create this podcast and our extensive artwork collection. Expenses like media hosting, media storage, editing software, and hardware like computers, audio, and photography equipment runs into the thousands. Any donation amount helps, no matter how small or large, is greatly appreciated. Visit flotations.com donations for more information or email donations at flotations.com. Fine art photography is also available for purchase at flotationsstore.com. Prints are made to order and available in large and small formats, including canvas metallic prints, as well as traditional high-end photographic paper in standard sizes. Flotations and this podcast can also be supported through the Podcasting 2.0 method. Using a Podcasting 2.0 application like Sphinx Chat or Podverse, you can stream Satoshis, which is one millionth of a Bitcoin, as you listen to the podcast. You only donate as you listen to the episode, and the amount you set per minute is completely up to you. At this time, 1,844 Satoshis is about $1, and you can choose to stream one Satoshi a minute, or 100, or even 2,000. It's completely up to you. Another way to support this show is through word of mouth. Feel free to tell your friends or family about Flotations live to tape. Feel free to share on social media and support by following the Twitter at Flotations for photographic content and at live to tape for our visual audiobooks and podcast announcements. Thanks for choosing to listen to Flotations live to tape. Let's begin this audiobook. Chapter 7 Which Lucy? Vicky, there's a Miss L. Roar aboard, Jean said excitedly. I just discovered it when I had to check tickets and passenger names. Vicky stopped her preparations for lunch and stepped outside the buffet into the aisle. Where's Jean? Where is she? Way up forward. You can't see her from here. A stunning girl, brown suit, brown hair. I can't stop to go up there now, Vicky craned to see her, the length of the electro cabin. Had she a squarish face? I'm not sure. Some of the passengers noticed their excitement. Two stewardess stepped back into the private privacy of the buffet. Vicky, could she be your Lucy Rowe? Hmm, that's possible. Today was Tuesday. She had seen Lucy Rowe from the air on Saturday in California. Since then, Vicky had flown to Chicago, had a rest day in Chicago on Monday, and was now flying from Chicago to New York. The Electra had taken off from Chicago half an hour ago at noon. With Jean, she was greeted with Jean, she had greeted the boarding passengers, but hadn't seen anyone she would have imagined to be Lucy Rowe. Still, with 68 passengers in planing, she might not have noticed every face. Yes, it's possible she's my Lucy Rowe, said Vicky. I'm surprised, of course. Lucy must have left Pine Top 
rather suddenly, or at any rate, and awfully soon after I was there. It seems like a strange coincidence. One point, Jean said, her ticket reads Miss Elro. It doesn't read Lucy. Her first name might be Lillian, for all we know. I'll go forward and speak to her first chance I get, said Vicky. Not that Graves' abstract portrait provided a sure means of identifying the girl by any means. Did she come from California? Her ticket doesn't say. It just reads Chicago as point of origin. But she could have started from California and changed planes in Chicago. That would involve two separate tickets. That's right. So her ticket doesn't tell us anything. Gosh, I'm intrigued. It could be very well be that right girl. Well, back to the coffee maker. Captain Tom Jordan had been delayed several minutes in takeoff and had notified the stewardess intended to make up the time during flight. That meant Vicky and Jean had even less time than usual, two hours in which to take care of the needs of 68 personnel and to set up and serve 68 hot luncheons. The stewardess had a minute to spare. Vicky, one chance to see Miss Elro was when she brought her lunch and tray. Are you enjoying the flight, Miss Rowe? Yes, it's very smooth and pleasant. The girl glanced at as she spoke. She was in her early twenties and did rather resemble the girl in Gravy's vague portrait, except that her hair was dark brown. Vicky had expected from the portrait that it would be a light brown. As for the squarish face, Vicky could not decide whether Graves had exaggerated its shape. Her large eyes and wide mouth resembled the portrait. Did this girl look like a top-notch secretary? She was trimly dressed and well-groomed and well-made up. Did she look like an outdoors girl? That was harder to guess. Vicky looked to see whether Miss Elro wore a Bryant family silver ring, but she wore no rings at all. This, too, proved nothing. Most women wore little or no jewelry while traveling. Vicky longed to ask Miss Rowe her first name, but she had no right, no excuse, no time to do so. She smiled at the girl and went on with her tasks. The trouble started shortly before they were due to land. The captain's buzzer sounded on the steward's call board, and Vicky wanted another glance at L. Miss, Miss L. Rowe, went forward to the cockpit, unlocking and then closing the steel door behind her. In the bright light of the cockpit, she saw that the faces of the two pilot and the navigator were strained but calm. Chuck Smith, the young navigator, had his jacket off and sleeves rolled up. There were grease stains on his shirt and arms. Captain Jordan said, Vicky, we're having a little trouble. We discovered the nose wheel had not retracted properly. Vicky knew it was not uncommon for nose wheels to get stuck like this. We've tried everything we can do to repair it, but no luck. Captain Jordan went on, I decided to make our scheduled landing anyway. I need the shock of landing. I think the shock of landing will jolt the wheel down into place. We have a tricycle we have tricycle landing gear so that this landing won't be too risky. In fact, I expect it to be a success. However, if it doesn't work, we better be prepared. Vicky was trained for emergencies. Her heart pounded, but she was listening calmly to the pilot. I want you, Eugene, to inform the passengers of our situation and to use emergency landing procedures just in case. Yes, sir. How soon? Start right away. You are about twenty minute you have about twenty minutes to prepare. Yes, Captain Jordan. Twenty minutes was ample time. Back in the cabin she found Jean and repeated the pilot's message, 
Then each stewardess went to her half of the cabin and explained quietly to the passengers. And explained quietly to the passengers, Vicky stressed that the landing was very probably would be a success, but because of the risk, they must be prepared. The passengers took the announcement as calmly as it was made. Vicky realized that these sixty-eight people looked to her and Jean for leadership. They must keep cool and move fast and accurately. First, they saw to it that every passenger had his seatbelt fastened tightly, and that all seats were in the upright position, and that no one was smoking. Then, Vicky selected four men who told her they had military and aviation experience. Vicky quickly showed them how to operate the lounge door exit, window exits, and rope and evacuation slides when the plane landed. She and Jean were responsible for opening the main entrance door and the buffet service door. Jean, meanwhile, selected three passengers, showed them how to operate the three window exits, and seat, seated behind, seated them there. Next, the stewardess briefed the passengers on locations of all exits. They showed the passengers how to brace their feet and arms, how to press their heads against the seat in front of them in order to avoid being thrown forward and getting bloody noses. The stewardess quickly distributed pillows and blankets for extra protection. Jean showed the women with the one baby aboard how to lock the baby in her arms. Some of the men passengers removed parcels from the overhead luggage racks and stowed the luggage and coats and coat closets. Will you please remove all sharp objects, Vicky said, walking along the plane aisle. Remove your glasses, all pens and pencils, brooches, belts, and buckles with any sharp objects, since these things could stab. Will you men please loosen their ties? Then she hurried and checked the fire extinguishers, first aid kits, and all emergency equipments. Sooner than Vicky expected, they were flying in over New York City. The captain's buzzer sounded. He said they were clearing and coming down any minute. Sheen sat down in the forward cabin adjacent to the main entrance door. Vicky sat down in the aisle seat across from the buffet service door. They strapped themselves in. Soaring down above the length of the LaGuardia airport, everything below looked as usual as any other winter afternoon, except that two emergency trucks for extinguishing fires came racing after them on the ground. Vicky said a little prayer. She spoke confidently to the passengers near her. Dropping and dropping, now Vicky could see the faces of the men on the field as the electric flew low past them. They stopped working to watch and to help if necessary. Then the plane gave a, terror, a terrific jolt and a jar which Vicky felt to the root of her teeth. The men and women swayed and rolled in their seats. The baby cried as the electric touched the ground. The plane shuddered all over and rolled on to a stop. Safe. No one thrown, nothing broken, nor on fire. The nose wheel had just come down exactly as Captain Jordan planned. Praise be, Vicky exclaimed. She unstrapped and jumped to her feet. She and Jean ran to reassure the children and the elderly among their passengers. Everyone was shaken up, profoundly sobered, but relieved and grateful. The men were inclined to joke now that the danger was over. The two stewardess made certain, and Captain Jordan came out to make certain that each passenger was all right. Not one person showed panic or cause of any trouble. Captain Jordan praised the stewardess for their share in maintaining a high morale. The captain was later 
The cabin was littered with passengers' garments, handbags, glasses, and pens. For several minutes, Jean and Vicky were busy picking these up. Everyone helped them, or almost everyone. Vicky noticed that Miss Elroe, like a few others, did not bother to help anyone but herself. Something glistened on the plane's carpet. Vicky picked it up. It was a gold charm off a woman's bracelet, inscribed Dorothy. She held it high and asked, Does anyone own a charm marked Dorothy? Several women shook their head. Vicky hastily consulted the manifest with a list of names. No woman passenger board had the name Dorothy or the initial D. Does anyone own a gold charm? Vicky asked, carrying it conspicuously all the way through the cabin. It was a valuable piece of jewelry. No one claimed it. She knew it was unlikely that the charm had been left on the plane from a previous flight since the cleaning crew at the terminals did a thorough job. The owner was on board this very minute. Why didn't Dorothy, whoever it was, claim it? The passengers began leaving the plane, the stewardess managing an orderly evacuation. There went Miss Elroe. Vicky was seized by an irresistible curiosity to see whether the Bryant or Mrs. Mr. Dorn could meet the girl. With a promise to Jean Cox and the passenger agent to come back, Vicky went to the plane stairs after Miss Rowe. She followed her at a short distance across the airfield into the crowded terminal building, out again in front of the portico, the portico to the taxi stand. Vicky watched Miss Elroe get directly into a taxi by herself without looking around to see whether anyone was waiting to meet her. Apparently, she didn't expect to be met. Well, I guess this isn't the right Elro, Vicky thought. If there were, the Bryans would at least have sent their car and chauffeur for her. Or is this her arrival a surprise? Even if it were, Mr. Dorn probably wouldn't be on hand to escort her. Even if it were, Mr. Dorn probably would be on hand to escort her to the Bryans' house. Vicky reasoned, wrong girl, that's that, just a coincidence of names and brown hair. In all likelihood, the Bryant's granddaughter, the girl with the brown hair and the green scarf, which tallied with the portrait, was still at the hill house near Pine Top. Vicky had a little gold charm clutched in her hand. The lost and found desk was only a few steps away. She was over and turned the charm in. It was odd, she thought, that no one on the plane had claimed it. On her return to the Electra, she joined Jean in completing the final routine picking up in the cabin and putting equipment back into place. After handing in their reports to the flight stewardess supervisor, Vicky and Jean went to the stewardess sleeping lounge to have a nap and tidy up. Now that the emergency was met and passed, they admitted they felt tired. We were lucky, Jean murmured from the uh, other cot. Lucky and skilled and well engineered. Lucky and skill and a well engineered plane, Vicky answered. She lay there on the cot thinking about the landing preparations, the unclaimed charm, and Miss Elro. Her thoughts drifted on to the Bryants. Suddenly she sat up and took coins from her purse and walked next door to the stewardess lounge. Where are you going? Jean called after her. I'm going to telephone Mrs. Bryant. She wanted to tell Lucy's grandmother that although she had not yet been able to deliver her message, she had to the best of her belief located Lucy and actually seen her from the air. The secretary answered the Bryants were not at home. She evidently knew from Mrs. Bryant's voice who Vicky was. She evidently knew from Mrs. Bryant who Vicky was. 
Vicky decided not to relay her news of Lucy's second hand and asked the secretary for an appointment. Vicky said she expected to be in New York again with free time next Saturday and Monday. Next Sunday and Monday. I'm sure that Miss Bryan would be delighted to see you at lunch or tea, said the secretary. I'll put you down for tea at four on Sunday, Miss Barr. Thank you. That's perfect. Until the Sunday, then. Between the mem- between that memorable Tuesday and the following Sunday, the 1st of March, Vicky flew three more lecture flights between New York and Chicago, with two days off in Chicago between flights. On one rest day, her mother took the local train from Fairview up to Chicago, and they spent a happy day together. On the other rest day, Vicky stayed at the Chicago hotel. Resting, she tried to exp- she tried to plan exactly what was going to tell Lucy's grandmother. When she visited the Bryan's house on Sunday, what disturbed Vicky was the fact that she had learned some things about Lucy which Mr. Doran in San Francisco a month or so earlier had not learned and possibly could have learned. Allowing that Mr. Doran had missed meeting Lucy as she herself had, and allowing that her own visit came a month later, still either she or Mr. Doran could be mistaken, and Vicky did not want to give Miss Bryan any wrong information or raise false hopes. I'm going to ask Mrs. Bryant the exact dates when Mr. Doran was in San Francisco, Vicky thought, because if he was there during the time Lucy became involved with Mrs. Heath, it is strange he didn't find out about that. Unless an old idea struck her, Mrs. Heath dodged Mr. Doran's inquiries and managed to keep him from learning of Lucy's new job. Mrs. Heath avoided meeting the minister, didn't she? She managed things so that a good friend like Graves never met her, didn't she? Hmm. Reviewing the few facts she had learned about Lucy's new job, Vicky had to admit they were sketchy and elusive. It had occurred to her in a wave of skepticism that the girl she had seen from the air might not necessarily be Lucy Rowe. A green scarf and light brown hair were not conclusive proof. Oh, it's likely that the girl is Lucy Rowe, Vicky thought impatiently with herself. Why don't I be sensible and see on Sunday what Dorn has learned in the meantime? Maybe what he's discovered by then and what I've discovered will tally after all. She daydreamed about Sunday and the pleasure she hoped it would give Mrs. Bryant to hear news of Lucy. The minute Vicky entered the Bryant's house on Sunday afternoon, she sensed the excitement there. The whole household had changed in its mood. Every lamp and chandelier in every room was alight. Boutiques of fresh-cut flowers loomed everywhere. Dance and music came from the radio. The house seemed young. Mr. and Mrs. Bryant's, when Vicky entered the room, with their parakeets looked as though they had woken up from a long sleep. Refreshed and happy, they were both beaming. Mr. Bryant had a flower in his buttonhole and Mrs. Bryant was as flush as a girl in her rustling taffeta dress. Vicky had never seen them in such festive spirits. Around the tea service, they were trays of tiny fancy sandwiches and cakes ready for a party. Vicky tried not to look inquisitive and said good afternoon. Vicky, how nice to see you. Miss Bryant took her hand and drew her into the room. You're right on time. Our other guests are coming at five but I especially wanted you here early. You'll see why. I'm so glad to see you again, said Vicky. I hope you're both well. 
We're feeling exceedingly well, said Mr. Bryant. Mrs. Bryant has a surprise which she thinks you'll enjoy. Now, Marshall, you mustn't spoil my surprise. First, I want to ask Vicky where she's been flying recently and all about the fantastic people on her plane. I think I hear her coming downstairs, Miss Bryant. Marshall Bryant interrupted. Miss Bryant looked flustered. Vicky, to help her, she said, her last few trips were probably not as special as Mrs. Bryant's surprise. The elderly woman smiled at her delightfully. Well, my dear, it is almost as wonderful a surprise for Mr. Bryant and me. Just wait one more moment now, Vicky heard someone's light, quick footsteps. Vicky, Mr. Dorn has found our granddaughter. Ah, oh, here she is. A slender, dark-haired girl, taller than Vicky, came into the room. She was the Mrs. L. Rohr, who had been on Vicky's plane. She lightly kissed both elderly women and smiled politely when Mrs. Bryant said, Lucy, this is Vicky Barr, who is about your age. She's the one who was so helpful to your grandfather on our airplane trip. How do you do, Miss Barr? If the girl recognized her, she gave not the slightest sign. I remember you on my plane earlier this week, Vicky, said pleasantly. She started to say how excited she had been on finding a Miss Elro aboard, but caught herself just in time. Mrs. Bryan had requested her not to mention her own search to anyone. It was likely that Mrs. Bryan had not told even Lucy the secret. Then Vicky noticed that Lucy Rowe was staring at her blankly, as if she had never seen the flight stewards before. You remember, Miss Rowe? Vicky said, the day we nearly had to make an emergency landing? Lucy Rowe gave it a forced smile and turned away. Vicky was astonished. Why, Lucy, her grandmother said, you didn't tell us about any difficulty in landing. It was nothing. I didn't want to alarm you, the girl said. May I have a cup of that nice hot tea? I'm not used to your cold weather in New York, but I expect I'd love it here. Who else is coming today? I'm so eager to be presented to your friends. No, I won't mind a bit that they're all older people. Lucy chattered on. Although Miss Bryant was eager for the two girls to be friendly, it seemed to Vicky that Lucy avoided conversing with her. Particularly, it seemed that Lucy did not want last Tuesday's flight mentioned again. Evidently, it embarrassed her in some way. I wonder why, Vicky thought. She would not be so tactless as to arise the subject again, of course. But why does Lucy Rowe act as if she'd never seen me before? Vicky felt embarrassed and disappointed. She'd appreciated a lively, warm-hearted approach girl from the several descriptions of Lucy Rowe, not someone who was very charming and sophisticated. Lucy was affectionate toward the Bryants, and they were already devoted to her as their newfound granddaughter. Vicky saw the lackly silver ring that Lucy wore. She recognized it as the Bryant family ring. No doubt about that, Vicky said, hoping to prompt, to prompt her to talk. What a lovely, unusual ring you're wearing, Miss Rowe. Thank you. Lucy held out her hand for Vicky to inspect the ring and said, I value this ring more than I can tell you because it's a family heirloom. Mother gave it to me and I've worn it constantly ever since she died. It hasn't ever been off my finger, not even once. Mrs. Bryant murmured appreciatively. Even Marshall Bryant looked touched. But Vicky was thinking, you didn't wear the silver ring last Tuesday on my flight. I looked and made sure. What a... Why was Lucy lying? A lie about the ring, an evasion about having been on Vicky's plane. What else would she lie about? Vicky was puzzled and troubled. 
She managed to conceal it, for if something was amiss here, she must not arouse the girl's suspicion. She needed to gain more information. I think it's wonderful that Mr. Dorn found your grandparents, your granddaughter so soon, Vicky said to Mrs. Bryant, hoping she would talk. Yes, Mr. Dorn found her on the, his second trip to San Francisco, Miss Bryant said, looking warmly at Lucy. He flew out there last week on Friday, and by the following Sunday, exactly a week ago today, I remember it was Washington's birthday, February 22nd, he wired us that he found our young lady. Last Sunday, Vicky thought, and I saw the girl I took to be Lucy at Pine Top last Saturday. Lucy said with a little laugh, I was on the... I was the most surprised girl in the world when Mr. Dorn appeared and told me that my grandparents wanted me and the happiest girl. Marshall Bryant lightened a fresh cigar and had gave a grunt of approval. Dorn is a good man. Vicky thought, have I made a mistake? And traced the long Lucy? I don't see how. Yet surely Mr. Dorn, who is a lawyer and who has time and money to work with, didn't make any mistakes. Of course, we wanted to meet our granddaughter instantly. The very next day after Mr. Dorn's telegram, Mrs. Bryant said with a smile, he flew back to New York and came to tell us, Lucy and Darling, that you can't imagine how absurdly disappointed your grandfather and I were when Mr. Dorn told us that you needed a little time to settle your affairs in San Francisco and would fly east by yourself. I could hardly wait to, Lucy said, and I practically ran in San Francisco doing all my goodbyes and chores. Even so, the fastest I could get here to you was Thursday. Thursday, Vicky nearly exclaimed aloud. Why, this L. Rowe was on my plane on Tuesday. She left the Gordy alone at 3 o'clock Tuesday afternoon. I saw, I saw her, but she didn't meet her grandparents till Thursday. Where was she during that interval? Lucy leaned toward her grandparents, and when Mr. Dorn met me at LaGuardia Airport on Thursday afternoon, I was terribly nervous about meeting you. I had to talk quietly. He had to talk quietly to me for about half an hour before I even get in the car. Another lie, Vicky thought angrily, or had this girl returned to the airport two afternoons later and pretended to Mr. Dorn that she had just got off the plane. So this was why, Vicky realized, Lucy Rowe did not want any mention of her having been on the New York-bound plane on Tuesday afternoon, Vicky said guardedly. New York is a wonderful place, but it is so, but it is your city, Miss Rowe. I'm just getting to know San Francisco on occasional visits. It's a fantastic, fascinating place. In what part of the city did you live? For a while, I lived on Telegraph Hill. Wonderful views from there. Then three other girls and I took a beach house one summer. It was fun, but a lot of the commuting to my job. No mention of the woman's hotel, Hotel Alcott. No mention of sharing an apartment with Mary Scott and her mother. That did not tally with what Vicky had learned. Lucy had answered readily, even Ghibli. Vicky tried another tact. Some of the best views in New York, she said, are from high up in office buildings. Is that true in San Francisco? Was it on your job? Lucy looked amused. I worked so hard at Whitney Decorators that there wasn't much time to admire views. Poor darling, said her grandmother. Oh no, it was a perfectly nice job with nice people, Lucy said, but I was awfully happy to give it up and come to you. No mention of working for Interstate Insurance Company. Was the interior decorator job a fact or another lie? 
if a fact when had Lucy worked for the decorator, and why didn't she mention her job with Miss Heath? Lucy made it sound as if she had been employed in San Francisco office buildings at the time when Mr. Dorn had found her a week ago. Vicky knew she had resigned from Interstate about a month earlier and had gone to Pine Top a couple weeks later. Why all these lies? If this girl was actually Lucy, she was trading on the love, treading, trading on the love of her grandparents, or if she was an imposter, she must be very clever to have fooled Mr. Dorn. Vicky said to her, "I'm not sure if I think that I met an acquaint." Vicky said to her, "I'm not sure, but I think I met an acquaintance of yours while I was in San Francisco, Jill. I can't remember her last name." Vicky pretended. Was it Jill Baker? said Lucy. Such a nice girl. Vicky noted and did not press the point. Not Jill Baker. That name was Jill Joseph. Unless Baker had been Jill's name before her marriage. Vicky decided to check the next time she was in San Francisco. She noticed that Lucy did not mention her old friend Jill living in her family's former house, nor their having been in school together. In fact, nothing about Jill. Did this girl know Jill Joseph? Lucy again chattered along, changing the subject, or was the omission of no importance? Then Thurman Dorn came in. Chapter 8 A Game of Wits For a moment, Vicky wished she had never gotten mixed up in the search for Lucy Rowe. The lawyer looked so cold, so professional, that her own small efforts to find Lucy shrank to absurdity. How impertinent she would appear if Mrs. Bryant happened to tell about Vicky's search, how difficult it would be to justify to the lawyer her doubts about this girl. Vicky glanced beseechingly toward the grandmother. Very, very slightly, Mrs. Brand shook her head. Did that mean she was not going to reveal their secret? Vicky hoped so. She glanced away just in time to hear the answer of Mr. Dorn's, How do you do? Careful now, Vicky warned herself. Don't say or ask anything which could alert Lucy that I suspect her. I mustn't intrude on Mr. Dorn's territory, particularly since Mr. Bryant has praised him so highly. The lawyer seated himself at Marshall Bryant's right. He was a perfectly correct and formal figure as he accepted a cup of tea from Lucy. She gave a little fuss over the young lawyer, and her grandmother teased her about it. Well, just think of what Mr. Dorn has done for me, Lucy answered, laughing. He's the one who found me, and I shall always be grateful to him. She shook her head, remembering last Sunday the stranger came to me asking to see my family letters and silver ring, asking me to identify myself. At first I did not know whether to take Mr. Dorn seriously. Vicky longed to know if that had met a pine top, but she could not afford to ask questions. Thurman Dorn smiled a little. I can tell you now, Miss Lucy, that a month earlier I was exasperated at not finding you, and your grandparents, he turned toward them differently, were, were exasperated with me. It's a good thing for all of us that you came back to San Francisco from your vacation. If you hadn't met me in the lobby of St. Clair Hotel last Sunday, I believe I would have sent out some sort of alarm for you. So they had met last Sunday in San Francisco, Vicky noted. That meant Lucy had come in from Pine Top, reasonable enough, but why did Lucy give Dorn and the Bryants the impression that her tour with Miss Heath was a vacation? Vicky wanted to see whether Lucy would mention, in the course of conversation, Mrs. Heath or the Reverend Mr. Hall 
or Nolan Graves. Curiously, she did not mention them, and Mr. Doran did not either. He did talk in detail about his about his methods of search and the fine cooperation he received from the San Francisco Post Office and Police Department. Mr. Doran named persons and places involved in his search, Whitney Decorators, Lucy's old Telegraph Hill resident address where he couldn't find her, Dr. Alice James, who was Lucy's and Lucy Mother's physician. Vicky was not unearthed by any of these in the course of her own search in and around San Francisco, not one of them. This was a night march. Then, who is this girl I traced to Pine Knob? Vicky thought again in utter bewilderment. Is this the same girl I saw? No, she isn't. Her. This girl's hair is very dark brown, sable brown, and that girl's was almost dark blonde. Yet Vicky thought in tracing Lucy Rose herself, she had received a straightforward answer from Jill Joseph and Mrs. Stacy at the Hotel Alcott and Mr. Hull and Mr. Hall, Gravy, they all obviously were not lying about all their accounts of Lucy Rowe, tailed and dovetailed. Vicky could only think either Mr. Dorn has been misled by this girl, who is lying, or less likely the lawyer is lying, or more likely I've made some glaring error. In fairness to all concerned, she could do only one thing, check back on the facts in San Francisco this coming week. She must try to keep an open mind. Even so, she felt uneasy about this avowed Lucy and her several lies and evasions. She was startled out of her thoughts when the girl said, Mr. Doran, Miss Barr met a friend of mine in San Francisco. Isn't that a coincidence? Small world, he said casually, though he paid attention to Vicky for the first time since he had come in. Are you in San Francisco often, Miss Barr? Vicky noticed that Mr. Brand had grown tense evading Dorn's question. She simply said, I'm in San Francisco, only when my airline sends me there. It isn't too often. Oh, yes, I remember now, said Dorn. You're a stewardess on Federal Airlines, said Vicky. Mr. Dorn nodded and lost interest and started to talk to Marshall Bryant about something else. Vicky half waited for Lucy to ask her a question about Jill Baker or make some further remark about Vicky's being in San Francisco, but Lucy, too, dropped the subject. Mr. Bryant and Mr. Dorn and Lucy went into the next room to discuss legal papers. Mrs. Bryant came over to Vicky. Will you accompany me upstairs, my dear? I want to uh, show you something of interest. A pretext so that they could talk together privately? Vicky wondered whether the elderly lady shared her doubts as to whether this girl was actually the Bryant's granddaughter. She did not. Indeed, she told Vicky how happy she was that Mr. Dorn found Eleanor's daughter that what a fine girl she considered her to be. I can see something of Eleanor in her in little ways. In what ways, Vicky asked, does she look like her mother? No, Lucy doesn't really resemble Eleanor or Jack Rowe either, but then I never resembled my parents. No, she reminds me of Eleanor in a certain dignity and reserve which she has, and in, oh, maybe I'm imagining it, but in little mannerisms. And Lucy knows so much about our family history, Mrs. Bryant went on, it's gratifying to me, naturally, that she takes such a great interest in the family. In fact, it's, the lady hesitated, it's almost, I wonder, considering her youth and the family separation, how it's possible for her to have learned so much family history in such detail, too. Vicky waited for Mrs. Bryant to think further about her doubt, to pay attention to this dangerous signal. But the elderly lady smiled and said, Lucy's family loyal. 
Loyalty accounts for her remarkable knowledge, of course. Vicky said nothing, but she did not necessarily agree. The Marshall Bryant family was a prominent one. From time to time, newspapers and magazines mentioned their activities and printed photographs. Mr. Bryant's career was listed in Who's Who. What was there to prevent a clever, unscrupulous girl from going to the public library in any big city, looking up these facts and memorizing them? A question occurred to Vicky. How had this girl, if she was an impostor, discovered that Thurman Dorn was seeking the young heiress up to a fortune? She could have found out in a number of ways, something overheard, a newspaper noticing inquiries about Lucy Rowe, even a word dropped by Lucy herself, and how the girl had sidetracked Mr. Dorn from finding the true Lucy. Was it more than a coincidence that Dorn had been unable to find Lucy on his first trip to San Francisco? Was it more of a coincidence that another girl named Lucy Rowe had gone away on a job to a lonely place in Pine Top? Vicky shivered. Mrs. Bryant was saying, I couldn't be happier, and I couldn't be more grateful to Dorn Thurman. To Thurman Dorn. He's done a wonderful thing in reuniting the three of us, the lady said hastily. Appreciate the interest you took in this matter, Vicky. I hope you didn't put yourself to any trouble. Nothing worth mentioning. At least not now, Mrs. Bryant. How and what did she tell how and what could she tell of her own search under the circumstances? My husband says Mr. Doran located Lucy comparatively quickly after so many years of silence. Vicky remembered the question she wanted to ask. Mrs. Bryant, about Mr. Doran's search, do you happen to recall the exact dates of his first trip to San Francisco? I remember every detail of the search of our granddaughter, Mr. Doran said. He was in San Francisco, his first trip from January 10th to 23rd. His second trip was from February 20th to 22nd. Vicky imprinted these dates on her memory. Don't you think Mr. Doran was quick to find Lucy on his second trip? Apparently his efforts on the first trip paid off. Yes, indeed, Vicky said, trying to keep the doubt out of her voice. Mrs. Bryant, you're, you haven't told anyone you wanted me to try and get in touch with Lucy. Oh, no, indeed, Mrs. Bryant laughed. Wouldn't you and I look foolish now that Lucy is here? I was foolish ever to make such a request of you, I'm afraid. Why don't we simply forget our little secret? Vicky smiled, but she had no intention of dropping her search, not after meeting that dark-haired girl today. Vicky, as a matter of sentiment, this morning I took the other silver ring out of the safe here in the house to show you. Come in here with me, won't you? Vicky followed Lucy's mother into an old-fashioned bedroom. From a bureau drawer, she took a silver ring, exactly like the one the dark-haired girl wore. You see, Vicky, it is unusual. There isn't another ring like this anywhere except Lucy's. A jeweler made just two from his own original design, and then destroyed the pattern. Mr. Bryant had them made when Eleanor was born. It's a lovely filigree emerald lace, Vicky said. Mrs. Bryant said she would return the ring. Mrs. Bryant said she would return the ring to the safe and suggested they go downstairs. Mr. Bryant and Mr. Dorn had finished their business, and Lucy disappeared in the order to the powder her nose. It was five o'clock. Other guests were beginning to arrive. Although the Bryants urged her to stay, Vicky asked to be excused. She had experienced quite enough for one afternoon. She returned to the apartment, which she shared with several other Federal Airlines stewardess. Jean Cox was at home, writing letters to her family. 
She and Chairman Wilson and Doc Crowley had just come in from their Texas friend and were asleep in the front bedroom. Tessa and Cecilia were working aloft somewhere along the Atlantic seaport. The stewardess housekeeper, Mrs. Duff, was out visiting friends. Vicky was glad that the apartment, so often full of guests and parties, was quiet this Sunday. She wanted to be alone for a little while to write down the names, dates, and addresses she had learned this afternoon at the Bryant's and to plan her next step. It was the following Wednesday, March 4th, when Vicky scheduled a New York-Chicago-San Francisco flight landed her in San Francisco again. She fumed at the delay, but now she had three days, Thursday, Friday, Saturday off, and I'm going to take a good use of them. She wanted tremendously to fly at once to Pine Top, but it would be foolish to go unprepared with spotty information. Her first step, obviously, was to check on the statement she had heard, heard Lucy and Mr. Dorn make on Sunday. Vicky decided to make full use of the telephone. In her hotel room, she collected papers, pencils, and telephone directory. Her list of names and addresses, which Dorn and Lucy had mentioned in accounting of Lucy's recent past. Then Vicky sat down at the telephone. First, she called up Jill Joseph out of Sorrento Heights. When Jill answered, Vicky could hear in the, gra in the background a babble of children voices and a dog barking. She and Vicky exchanged hellos, and then Vicky asked, Have you heard from Lucy? No, I haven't, Jill Joseph answered. It's beginning to worry me. Have you? Vicky hesitated. I'm still trying to get news of her. Tell me again, is, the light is her hair light brown or dark brown? Light brown, Lucy calls it dirty blonde. The alleged Lucy Rowe at the Bryant's house has dark, sable brown hair. Would Lucy color her hair, do you think? Vicky asked. I can't imagine why she, you would. Its natural color is pretty. She never has tinted it. Vin, Vicky said she had an even stranger question and asked Jill Joseph what her maiden name has been. Rossiter, why, for goodness sake, do you know or does anyone know anyone named Jill Baker? Vicky asked. Never heard of Jill Baker, Vicky. All these questions, is something wrong? Again, Vicky hesitated. There may be. I'm trying to find out. One more question. Did you ever hear from a Mr. Dorn? Jill had not. Or from a girl or anyone else inquiring about Lucy? No, said Jill Joseph. You're the only one. Well, that proved nothing. Mr. Dorn's line of investigation needed not include an old friend from who Lucy now saw only occasionally. Vicky, is something wrong? Why don't you report it to the police? Because I'm not positive anything is wrong. Besides, there's a delicate situation here, Vicky was not at liberty to mention the Bryants and their dislike for publicity. If the police stepped in, the newspapers would get wind of the story, Vicky said. I really don't think it's necessary to go to the police. Don't worry. Well, I'm worried. Let me know as soon as possible as you have any news of Lucy, will you, please? Vicky promised and said goodbye and hung up. Would the scouts be home from their ship by now? According to Jill Joseph, Lucy had lived with Mary Scott and Mrs. Scott. Dorn and Lucy in New York had never mentioned them. Why, Vicky tried the scout's telephone number, which Jill Joseph had given her earlier. A woman's voice answered. Vicky introduced herself and explained that she was trying to locate Lucy Rohr. This is Mrs. Scott, the voice said. I don't see why you should have any trouble in locating Lucy, Miss Barr. She has an excellent job with Mrs. Heath. Well, no, Mary and I haven't heard from her. 
No, Lucy was not traveling with us, not at any time. But Mr. Dorn had told the Bryans that day at luncheon that Lucy was traveling with another girl and the girl's mother. Had the lawyer lied? Such a minor point to lie about. Or had he honestly misunderstood Lucy's trip with Mrs. Heath to be on a trip with the scouts? There was no way of knowing. Vicky set aside this question of traveling and tried another. Mrs. Scotts, did Lucy live with you and your daughter? Yes, she shared our apartment for several months. Then last January, she moved to the Hotel Alcott for women. Last Sunday, when Vicky asked Lucy Rohr where she had lived in San Francisco, the girl had not mentioned the Scotts and the Hotel Alcott. Instead, she talked of living on Telegraph Hill one summer and sharing a beach house with three other girls. Mrs. Scott, Vicky asked, can you give me Lucy's former address on Telegraph Hill? Why, Lucy never lived on Telegraph Hill, to the best of my knowledge. No wonder Mr. Dorn had said he couldn't find Lucy there. Did she share a beach house one summer with three other girls, Vicky asked? If she did, Lucy never mentioned it to us, and it isn't like her to be secretive. I think you must have some wrong information, Miss Barr. I guess I have unless the alleged Lucy's story of the beach house and living on the Telegraph Hill was an out-and-out falsehood, or unless she was another Lucy Rowe. Mrs. Scott, Lucy Rowe, isn't an uncommon name. The Lucy Rowe I'm looking for is the daughter of Eleanor Bryant Rowe and Jack Rowe, both of them deceased. Yes, that's right. That's the Lucy we know, the Lucy who stayed with us. Then she presumed, then the presumed granddaughter, in New York was lying, Vicky sighed. I'm sorry to have troubled you, Mrs. Scott. Not at all. Any more questions? Goodbye, then, Miss Barn. When the fairness to Mr. Dorn, he had not mentioned the beach house and Telegraph Hill. The lie was the girls. Vicky consulted her list of names and addresses. She was feeling rather grim about these lies. She decided to check out with Whitney decorators where the presumed Lucy had said she had been employed. There was no Whitney decorators listed in the regular telephone directory, nor in the classified advertisement telephone book. Vicky called a professional association of decorators. They had no knowledge of a firm or person named Whitney. Next, Vicky called information and waited while the operator looked up the name. We have no record of any firm by that name. However, there are several persons named Whitney listed in your regular directory. Would you care to call them? Vicky did that. Not one of them was a directory, a director, a decorator, nor even allied, any allied field. Not only, not one of them had ever heard of Lucy Rohr. So that was that, an outright lie, Vicky tried to recall whether Mr. Dorn had been party to this lie. No, as she remembered the talk last Sunday, only Lucy had mentioned Whitney decorators. I suppose Vicky thought that seeing her silver ring and family letters convinced Mr. Dorn that he had found the right Lucy. How in the world did she come by this ring and other family things? Is she an imposter? It doesn't seem possible, unless she stole them from the true Lucy. That was perfectly possible, though Vicky had no way of proving it as yet. Dr. Alice James, let's see, if Dorn, who was last Sunday, he had brought up this physician's name. Vicky somehow, Vicky remembered how he had made a rather point of telling Dr. James had been both Lucy and Lucy's mother's physician. Vicky had difficulty in locating an address and telephone number for Dr. Alice James. 
in San Francisco or in any of its suburbs. She used the same methods as in her search for Whitney decorators with the same results. There was no record of any Dr. Alice James. Not such person existed. Lucy in New York had lied again, and on this point, Mr. Don had lied. Now, up to now, Vicky had more or less dismissed her doubts about why Don's findings did not tally with hers by taking the blame for any error upon herself, but now she was brought up short. Mr. Dern was guilty of a lie about the search for Lucy Rowe. It struck her as odd that, so far as she had checked today, he had lied about this one point, about the non-existent Dr. Alice James, on what other points involved Don could she check. Well, Mr. Darn said he met Lucy last Sunday in the lobby of the St. Clair Hotel. Vicky recalled, and Mr. Bryant that first day at lunch mentioned Dorn's being at St. Clair Hotel. I assume Don stayed there on his second visit last week too. Let's see what checks let's see what check turns up on that. She she tried calling the St. Clair Hotel, but the desk would not release any information over the telephone. Vicky powdered her nose and put on a hat and gloves and went over to the hotel. She was obliged to see the hotel manager prove who she was and state her business as far as she discreetly could before she could persuade him to have an assistant look up back records. The assistant to Mr. Craig finally told her, Mr. Thurman Dorn stayed at this hotel from January 12th through January 21st and overnight on February 21st but these dates did not fully tally with Mrs. Bryant's statement. According to her, Dorn was in San Francisco, and presumably at this hotel January 10th to 23rd and February 20th to 22nd. The two days were unaccounted for at the beginning of the January trip, and two days were unaccounted for at the end of the January trip. Also, two days were unaccounted for on his February trip. Where had Don been? Another San Francisco hotel. Not likely. No point to it. At Pine Top, but in January, Lucy and Mrs. Heath had not let, had not yet left San Francisco for Pine Top, so Don would have no reason to be there. And in February, on Sunday, February 22nd, Don and Lucy had said they met in the hotel lobby. Where had Mr. Don been on those unaccounted for days, and what had been, and what had he been doing, since he flew? Since he flew from coast to coast traveling, had not eaten up those several extra days, unless he had made a stopover somewhere en route, and not come directly from New York to San Francisco. But that was sheer speculation. Vicky walked back toward her own hotel, wondering a total of six days unaccounted for. A great deal could have happened in six days, especially during the course of an intensive search that brought another question to mind. Why had neither of the presumed Lucy nor Mr. Dorn ever mentioned Mrs. Heath or Graves, the painter or the Reverend Mr. Hull? Lucy Rowe was closely associated with these three people, yet the Bryants had never been informed of their existence. Even if Lucy in New York hadn't wanted Mr. Dorn to know about these three people, Vicky thought, Dorn could have found out about them on his own, just as I did. Her mistrust of Dorn grew. Either the lawyer had made in an adequate misleading investigation, or he had discovered the existence of Mr. Heath, Gravy, Mr. Hall, but was not telling the Bryants about them for some reason. The reason was sadly obvious. Dorn 
Dorne and the alleged Lucy together did not want to give up the Bryants the name and address of three persons who could help the grandparents find the true Lucy. And yet that might yet that may not all be true at all. I'm only speculating, Vicky reminded herself. Before I can believe anything or say anything to the Bryants, I must get proof, more facts. Even more urgent than proof was the need, assuming the Lucy in the New York had been an imposter, to find the true Lucy Roar. Was the girl seen at Pine Top? If not, who was that light brown haired girl? I promised myself to be back to Pine Top, Vicky thought. It seems the time is now. Returning to her hotel room, she picked up the telephone, called Nuevo Airport, and reserved the Cessna 150 for tomorrow. Perhaps she would discover something of real importance back there in the hills. Chapter 9 Secrets at Midnight Timing was important. Vicky had figured her flight from San Francisco and the Cessna 150 to bring her in over Pine Top just about dusk. With nightfall and the story she planned to tell, she hoped to have to stay overnight at the hidden house. She hoped to give Miss Heath no choice, no chance directly to send her away. During the night there, she would, there should be time and privacy to talk to Lucy or whoever the girl really was provided Mrs. Heath did not intrude on them. It was a bold plan, not foolproof by any means. Vicky had sensed enough to be scared. High up in the hills, Vicky left the few houses of Pine Top behind. She headed the plain higher over the wooden, wooded mountainside, flew over the woods and the wall and the extreme end of the gilded place. Then she cut her speed as she came soaring out over the meadow. This was the landing site inside the galley grounds which she had chosen last time vicky could not see either woman anywhere down there on the shadowy grounds but the lights were on in the house someone was at home landing on the meadow near the rear of the house she made the plane perfectly turned engine as noisily as she could so the women would hear her the kitchen door flew open and a girl came out running toward the plane an older woman followed more slowly vicky already was opening the engine hood as had assumed an anxious expression. What do you mean by landing on our grounds? The woman called out. I was forced down. I beg your pardon, Vicky called. I'm having engine trouble. The girl reached her side. Are you all right? In one stiff glance in the half light, Vicky took in the girl's light brown hair and opened friendly gaze. She was very like the girl in Gravy's portrait, rather tall and athletic, as Jill and Joseph said. What as Jill Joseph had said. What's more, she wore the bright silver ring. I found her, Vicky thought, but she hid her hid her exultation. Yes, thanks, I'm all right, she answered. You can't stay here, the woman said, coming up. This is really annoying. Surely you weren't forced to land right in our laps? I'm sorry, Vicky said again. I'll try to repair the engine and take off in a few minutes. Although in this fading light it's hard, she looked in the engine to see what the trouble is. She glanced up to study the elusive Miss Elizabeth Heath. The woman did not have quite an air of authority, of poise. She was well-dressed and held her gray head high. Beside her, Lucy seemed very young and unsure of herself. Can I help you, the girl asked Vicky. She was a warm-hearted girl, and Jill had said, not knowing that I know about plane engines. I don't know... A awful lot about them myself, Vicky had pointedly 
said pointedly. Then how do we expect to make the repair, Miss Heath? said in exasperation. I think you had better call up a garage. You may have use of my telephone or an airport and have them come and get you out of here. The girl said, I'm afraid there isn't a garage within miles of here, Miss Heath, and no airport. Miss Heath fumed while Vicky poked in the engine. Vicky straightened up. The engine is rough from a carburetor shovel, or there may be a little water in the engine. Whatever it is, I don't want to fly at night with enough and rough engine and be forced down in the dark. There was silence. Then Mrs. Heath said, No, I suppose you can't be expected to take such a risk. Lucy asked, She can't possibly stay here. Can't she possibly stay here overnight, Miss Heath? Well, I don't wish to appear harsh, but I really hadn't, hadn't counted on having a guest. We were planning to do some work this evening, you know. Vicky apologized for disturbing them and said that if they could possibly put her up, she wouldn't be a nuisance. Of course, I'd want to reimburse you, and I leave early in the morning, Vicky pleaded. But really, Miss Heath protested. Perhaps someone in Pinetop could take you in, Lucy said. I could, I mean, we could, Lucy corrected herself. Drive her down to Pinetop and ask around. No, no, Miss Heath said hastily. We're steered clear of our inquisitive neighbors so far. Besides, I shouldn't care to drive down that mountain road at night. It's a friendlier tone, she said. You may have an extra bedroom. I'm Mrs. Heath, and this is my young friend Lucy Rowe. How do you do, Vicky said, and gave her name. I've flown in from San Francisco. My home is Illinois, and I've been in San Francisco for just a short stay. I'm from San Francisco, Lucy said eagerly, and a little homesick for it. Mrs. Heath interrupted, saying, they had better go in the house and see about dinner. She led the way around through the side of the gardens via the slide door into the large long living room of the country house. Mrs. Heath was being an amenable if resigned hostess. She asked Lucy to take the guest to the extra room and see that she could be comfortable. But please come down right away, Lucy, said Miss Heath. Didn't she want Lucy to talk alone with the stranger? I'm sure that's we're all hungry for dinner. Upstairs, Lucy led Vicky to a small rear bedroom, the large front bedroom adjoining Mrs. Heath with its doors closed. Across from Mrs. Heath's room was Lucy's smaller front room with its open door. A short hall connected with all three bedrooms and the bathroom. Vicky noted the layout, planning where it would be safest to touch Lucy late at night. Here are fresh towels, Lucy said bringing them into Vicky's room, and I'll lend you a housecoat and slippers. Vicky seized the momentary privacy. Miss Rowe, Lucy. Yes, please call me Lucy. Lucy, do you know Mr. Doran Thurman? Why, no, I've never heard of him. Should I? Perhaps Mrs. Heath would know him. Please don't mention his name to Mrs. Heath, Vicky said. Please. I brought you an extremely important message, but Mrs. Heath mustn't know. That's why I landed the plane here. You what? The girl was startled. Girl, Miss Heath called out. What's taking you so long up there? We'll be down in a minute, Lucy called back, and looking searchingly at Vicky. What message? From whom? Vicky hesitated. She did not want to upset Lucy visibly in front of Miss Heath. It's not something I can tell you quickly or simply, Vicky said. She also would rather obtain proof of Lucy's identity before revealing too much. Can we talk after Mrs. Heath had gone to bed? 
I don't understand why we need to be secretive, Miss Heath is my friend. Lucy, I don't blame you for wondering about me, but your old friend, the Reverend Mr. Hall, knows me, and in a way, he sent me to you. Mr. Hall? How do you know I know Mr. Hall? I don't understand this at all. There isn't anything difficult to understand, Vicky assured her. I'm looking for a girl named Lucy Rowe. That's all. Her parents were Jack and Eleanor Rohr. Vicky was careful not to mention the Bryant's name, not to give away any leads. According to the minister, that's you, isn't it? Why are you looking for this girl? For a confidential reason, a happy, wonderful reason. Lucy did not or could not believe this. But I've come to you as a friend, Vicky said. Mr. Hull can vouch for me, and honestly, I'm bringing you the most wonderful news. Vicky swallowed hard. Of course, if he vouches for you, but at least tell me, who sent you? Vicky put her hand on Lucy's and touched the silver ring. Your grandmother sent me. The girl stiffened, distrustful again. I have no grandmother. I don't know what you're talking about. She was pale and trying not to cry. If you're not the granddaughter, where did you get this silver ring? Lucy took a deep, quivering breath. She admitted she was Marshall and Lucy Bryant, long unwanted granddaughter. Vicky noted that Lucy, not herself, was the first to bring it up. Vicky noted that Lucy, not herself, was the first to bring up the Bryant name. If you want proof of who I am, Vicky, I have proof right here in the house with me. Letters, photographs, this ring. My mother gave it to me when I was a child. There are only two rings like this in existence. There were supposed to be only two such rings, Vicky thought. She then had three rings, one which Mrs. Bryan had taken from her trinket box on one hand of Lucy in New York, and the other and one hand on Lucy here beside her. One of the two Lucys was an imposter. The Lucy in New York also possessed letters and documents to prove her identity. Those things could be forged. A ring could be copied. Which the girl was true. Which girl was true, Lucy? Vicky believed her to be this friendlier, light brown. Vicky believed her to be this friendlier, light brown-haired girl. The girl of the portrait. The girl who Mr. Hall, Jill Joseph, the clerk at the Hotel Alcott, had reported to be was Mrs. Heath. The girl whom Mr. Doran could easily have traced. If he had wanted to, Miss Heath called again. The girls started downstairs together. Vicky whispered, not a word to Mrs. Heath about this, and Lucy nodded. She was still shaken. The lady announced with some impatience that she was keeping dinner hot in the warming oven. Would Lucy make the salad and coffee while she herself set the table? Lucy hurried into the kitchen. Vicky went into the kitchen, too, to help. In low voices, they arranged to meet at midnight to talk further. Lucy thought the guest bedroom would be the safest place. Mrs. Heath would have no reason to enter Vicky's room, even if the lights were on. You two girls, said Mrs. Heath, coming into the kitchen, seemed to have a great deal to say to each other. Lucy murmured an apology for the delay and hurried to finish the salad. Vicky helped Mrs. Heath bring the food from the dining table in the area just off the living room. Then three of them sat down. Dinner was rather strained. Vicky's hostess seemed to expect the intruder to account for herself. Vicky talked about her flight stewardess job with Federal Airlines and her enthusiasm for the sport of private flying. Lucy listened with interest. Mrs. Heath was thoughtful. About two weeks ago, the lady said, a small plane flew back and forth over our house and meadow. It upset me. It seemed to be deliberate. 
Was that you by chance? Vicky did not dare glance at Lucy. It must have been someone else, Miss Heath. I was quite lost this afternoon. That's how I got here. She disliked telling an untruth, but she was not sure enough of Mrs. Heath's friendship for Lucy to reveal anything of importance. Miss Heath talked about her book of memoirs, though I'm afraid we haven't actually done much on it, have we, Lucy? I'm still in the planning stage. Then Mrs. Heath mentioned the plan for her and Lucy to go abroad. I don't really want to go, Lucy said uncomfortably. Not very much. It's only perhaps said her it's only perhaps said her employer. Lucy looked down at her plate and kept still. Miss Heath changed the subject to the to the countryside here, and there had been so many lovely trees to enjoy without ever leaving their own grounds. Miss Heath remarked that Lucy particularly liked birds. Vicky started to say something about Mrs. Bryan's collection of parakeets, then caught herself just in time. During the evening, Miss Heath and Lucy did not work on the book after all. They clattered with their guests and watched television for a while. Vicky borrowed a flashlight and went outdoors to make sure the plane was safely stacked down and the wheels chalked. At nine o'clock, Miss Heath announced it was bedtime. We're early birds in the country. Good night, Vicky. Rest well. The girls wished her good night and started to go upstairs. Lucy, Miss Heath called her back, help me lock up down here. She was trying to keep her and Lucy apart, Vicky wondered. But did Miss Heath suspect something? That was hard to tell. In any case, Miss Heath was keeping a close watch. She and Lucy would have to be careful tonight. From nine until midnight was a long stretch. Vicky changed into her borrowed nightclothes and put on her light. She heard Lucy go to bed at last, and Mrs. Heath, she wrestled at last. Mrs. Heath, she rested but was afraid to sleep lest she and Lucy both slept straight through the night. The house was absolutely quiet. The night grew chilly. On the stroke of midnight, by the luminous figure on her wristwatch, the door opened soundlessly, and someone slipped in. Vicky was surprised at how hard her heart was beating. She waited until the figure stepped into the moonlight, until she saw Lucy's face, then whispered, Wait, I'll get out of bed. Don't turn on the light. Not yet. Both girls peached on the edge of the bed, wrapped in their ro robes and sweater. They were able to see each other's faces clearly in the moonlight. Lucy said softly that Mrs. Heath was asleep on the other side of the wall. She's a sound sleeper. I hope so. I don't see why you mistrust Miss Heath. She's almost like a mother to me, Lucy said warmly. We'll never mind that. I'm dying to know what my grandparents want. What are they like? Is my grandfather still awfully stern? In some ways he is, Vicky said, but he's not so formidable as Mrs. Bryant is lovely. Both of them want to know their granddaughter and, well, make up for her. She realized she was saying too much too soon. Lucy, first I must have some more proof of who you are. Not that I question your word, but Lucy nodded. That's all right, though I can't imagine why anyone would have any doubts at all about knowing I'm Lucy Rowe. Vicky kept silent about the other Lucy Rowe in New York, established in the Bryant's house. She could discuss that difficult situation later. Lucy was digging into the pockets of her robe. Here, Vicky, I want you to see these. She handed Vicky a few worn documents. I've just turned on this little bedside lamp and tilt the shade, so she did so. The letter on the top is, well, read it, Vicky. 
Ricky unfolded the letter, so old it was torn and creased. The ink had faded, and on the note of paper losing print, the letter was authentic all right, and it was addressed, Dear Eleanor, and signed Mother. It was proposed a family recon reconciliation and offered aid for a small Lucy. Vicky glanced up, inquiring. Lucy said, Mother never accepted Grandmother's offer. I guess she never even answered this letter. We all had such stained feelings about my father. He was a darling. Here is a snapshot of him. Lucy handed Vicky a thin bundle of old snapshots and photographs. One of her parents taken a picnic. One was of Mr. and Mrs. Bryant, very formal, taken years before. One was a print of the same snapshot of Lucy as a little girl, seated on the porch steps, which Mr. Bryant had shown Vicky earlier. These pictures, too, impressed Vicky as being authentic, not clever forgeries. I'd have more photographs and letters to show you, Lucy said, except that Mrs. Heath insisted on putting them away for safekeeping. She wanted me to give her all the letters and photographs for her to put away. She even urged me not to let her put away the silver ring. She did, Vicky exclaimed. Then remembering to lower her voice, where did she put your things? They're locked in her room somewhere, along with her old valuables. She keeps her door locked, too. She says it's safer that way in the country. Is that really necessary? Well, you see, I don't want to please her. I do want to please her, so I gave her most of my letters and photos to put away, but I just have to keep some few things with me all the time. I've done that ever since my parents died. I suppose it's awful sentimental, and of course the silver ring. I couldn't bear to part with it, even though Miss Heath predicted that I'll lose it gardening or something. I don't think you'll lose your ring, Vicky said dryly. I think it's strange that Mrs. Heath made such a point of putting away your very personal things. No, it isn't. She locked away all her own things, too. And she says any time I want my things, I only need to ask her. Well, shh, do you hear it moving around? Oh my, sometimes she knocks on my door when she doesn't feel well. Both girls listened. Lucy put out the lamp and the moonlight poured into the room again. On the other side of the wall, Miss Heath was stirring. They held their breaths and heard bedsprings creak and quiet. Lucy let out a sigh of relief. I guess she just turned over in her sleep. Nevertheless, they kept perfectly still for a few minutes and left the lamp off. Lucy ventured to speak again, softly, eagerly. You still haven't told me about the message from my grandparents, Vicky. I told you most of it, or you've guessed it. They want to give you all their advantages and good things which they feel you as their granddaughter are entitled to. Lucy murmured, that's wonderful, then asked what made them change their minds after so many years. Vicky explained how Mr. Bryant's severe heart attack had made him stop and take moral stock of his life. She added that Lucy's grandmother had for a long time grieved about the family separation. Now they want you to come live with them, Lucy, or near them, if you wish. The eagerness strained out of Lucy's voice. They don't really want me. Lucy, they do want you very much, but I can't dis I can't decently leave Mrs. Heath now. If you had brought me this news a few weeks ago, it would be wonderful. It would have transformed my life, but it's impossible now. Or I promise to stay with her. She needs me. Why did Mrs. Heath talk at dinner about going abroad? Vicky asked. Have you also promised to go out of the country with her? It's just a vague plan, Vicky. Heath, 
It's just a vague plan Mrs. Heath had ever since I met her. I don't know exactly what she has in mind. Vicky asked whether they would go soon. I suppose it might be soon. Mrs. Heath does things on the spur of the moment. Vicky found this troubling prospect. If Lucy went abroad and stayed a long time, she might never be reunited with her grandparents. Even if she remained abroad for a short time, the separation was risky. The Bryans were elderly people. Mr. Bryant had heart ailments. However, on this point, Lucy was stubborn. Vicky saw that she felt really committed to her job with Mrs. Heath. You see, do you ever, Vicky said tentatively, wonder about your employer? Don't you ever have any doubts about her and her plans? How do you, do you guess that? Lucy exclaimed. Then she seemed confused. I shouldn't really have said that. Mrs. Heath is kind to me, and this is a pleasant job. But to tell you the truth, some things do strike me as strange, especially now that I have a chance to talk about it. I mean, now that you make me think about it. What things? Lucy gave a sigh of relief. All right, I'll tell you, though maybe I'm being disloyal. Ever since they came to Pine Top, Lucy said Mrs. Heath had not actually written anything, though the book was their reason for being here. Mrs. Heath had not given Lucy any dictation beyond a few letters, mail orders to San Francisco stores. As for the mail, what there was of it, Mrs. Heath handled it herself, and never let Lucy touch any outgoing or incoming letters. But you surely but surely you could mail a letter if you wanted to, Vicky said, when you go down to the pine top or drive to the nearest sizable town. But we haven't left these premises since we first got here, Lucy said. We've stayed right here for let's see, a month now. What? Why, for goodness sake. Oh, Mrs. Heath says she's thinking out her book, and she's concentrating and doesn't want to be distracted. Besides, she hasn't been feeling very well. But you could have this place for a few hours, surely, just for a change of scene. But you could leave this place for a few hours, surely, just for a change of scene, Vicky said. Mrs. Heath wants me with her. We're busy enough. We keep the house and cook. We brought a big food supply in from the car. Mr. Heath phones Mr. Potter when we need more. She tells him to leave it at the wall door, and she leaves payment for him in our mailbox. Mrs. Heath doesn't like being bothered with deliveries, and, well, there's a garden to take care of. We read and we chat. It's pretty dull, doesn't it? It sounds pretty dull, doesn't it? Lucy said uncertainly. She seemed to be reconsidering her routine. Mrs. Heath had kept me busy doing some rather pointless research for her. Hmm, it is extraordinary, Vicky thought, that for a month Lucy had not seen nor talked with anyone except Mrs. Heath. Do you not get restless or lonesome? Yes, I do. I wanted to call up a couple of my friends in San Francisco, but Mrs. Heath discouraged me from doing so. She won't even let me answer the telephone, though it seldom rings. It's in her bedroom, and she keeps her bedroom door locked. But why locked? Because of the valuables she keeps in there, she says. Again, Lucy seemed to reconsider. It is odd, isn't it? Lucy, I want to say something which I hope won't offend you. I know you're fond of Miss Heath. You mistakenly made her almost a substitute for your own mother. Well, like it or not, it sounds to me if Mrs. Heath is keeping you here as a prisoner. Lucy remained silent and motionless. The moonlight has shifted. The room was darker now so that Vicky could not read her expression. At last, Lucy said, That's a harsh thing for you to say. But 
I've once or twice thought the same thing. A prisoner. You could leave, you know. It's not so simple, Vicky. I haven't any money. Mrs. Heath did not pay her a salary on a weekly basis. That would not make much sense here in these hills. She promised to pay Lucy's salary in a lump sum later on. Miss v Mrs. Heath had given her a sum in advance when Lucy first took the job with her, but the girl had spent it on clothes and paid some old bills, and Mrs. Heath persuaded me to bank what was left. You could leave if you wanted to, Vicky pointed out, even without money. There are always people who will help you, organizations who will help, if you seriously need help in an emergency. Well, I don't feel I have the right to leave. I promise to stay with my, with her for a certain length of time. It's more than a business obligation, Vicky. She cares more for me than my grandparents ever did. And Mrs. Heath needs me. She depends on me. But Vicky had seen that Mrs. Heath was neither ill nor dependent. In fact, she was a vigorous woman and decided well. True, the employer had to be considered, but Lucy needed to consider her own welfare as well. Vicky suspected Mrs. Heath of playing upon Lucy's sympathies and her lonesomeness for her family. Lucy, how do you happen to strike up such a close acquaintance with Mr. Heath in the first place? Well, it was rather sudden, Lucy admitted. At the moment at the women's hotel, Lucy said, the residents easily became acquainted in the lobby, in the dining room, in the television lounge. She and Mrs. Heath had linked each other up from the start. She and Mrs. Heath had liked each other from the start. She felt complimented when Mrs. Heath decided almost at once that Lucy was exactly the girl she had been looking for to be her secretary companion in offering her in offering the job. Mrs. Heath showed Lucy unassailable credentials and identification. She comes from Chicago, Lucy said. I think she has friends in New York, too. I overheard her phoning once when she had given me an all-morning gardening chore. I ran out of seeds and then spade and then the spade handle broke and I came to her room to tell her about it. Her only only her door was locked and I heard through was having trouble getting her number. I heard her though she was having trouble getting her number. She was trying very especially to reach someone in New York. I guess you think I'm awful to be an eavesdropper. No, I don't not at all. Under these strange circumstances, what did you hear? Well, it was a person-to-person -person call, but I don't know whom she was calling. All I heard was the New York telephone number. I guess it's a business place, because she kept asking for an extension number. And remember the number because it's an easy one, and it's like one I called a lot when I was a secretary at Interstate Insurance. It's... Wait, Vicky turned on the one bedside lamp, a slip of paper from her purse, and wrote down the, tel the New York telephone number. It was not familiar to her. I'm going to keep this number, Lucy. What are you going to do with it? I don't know at the moment. Don't worry. I won't do anything to embarrass you or get you in trouble. I think you're already in trouble, being here in this isolated house, almost as a prisoner. Why, Lucy, you're being held here incommunicado. You're being held here incommunicado. Don't you realize that? But I, Mrs. Heath, is so nice to me. Nice, yes, on the surface. And little things you're letting your sympathies blind you to the facts. I am a great deal more suspicious of this woman and these living arrangements than you are. 
Listen to me, Lucy. I think you'd better get out of here fast. This is an unhealthy situation for you. I wish you'd fly out of here with me tomorrow morning. Lucy hesitated. It's so sudden. I need time to think. Though, what you're saying is true. I need to think about my grandparents, too. I hardly know how to feel about them. She was leaving the question open. Vicky was dissatisfied with that. Once she herself had left this hidden house, she might not be able to gain entrance and see Lucy again, and she would not be able to communicate with Lucy by telephone or letter. This was their only chance tonight to set up some arrangement to help Lucy leave, to escape actually because Mrs. Heath would not want to let go of the girl. Vicky thought hard. If she came back to get Lucy, she better not use a plane or alert Mrs. Heath the second time. She better use a car, which she could rent, which could park out of sight and sound down the road from the house. Lucy could meet her there. They signal for today an hour, if only she could use the telephone. Well, she could in a way. Lucy, do you know the telephone number in this house? Yes, I got it from the telephone company man when he hooked up the phone here for us. It's Vicky wrote it down. Lucy, I'm going to come back here secretly and get you. I'll be waiting in a car at the first sharp curve at the corner on top of the road. I'll be. It will be noon. All you have to do is slip away and run down the road. Don't take any luggage with you, not even a coat or a purse. Nothing to arouse Mrs. Heath's suspicions. Do you understand? Yes, but you're really going to do all of this for me? You honestly think I'm not safe here? Lucy, pay attention. I'll be waiting at noon. What day? The girl sounded frightened. I don't know the day yet, but on that morning, I'll send you a signal by telephone. You'll know you can't receive... I know you can't receive a phone call, but there's a way. The telephone will ring. Miss Heath will answer it, and I'll say... Vicky stopped. No, she would be driving from San Francisco to Pine Top that morning, or someone else. Vicky stopped. No, she would be driving from San Francisco to Pine Top that morning. Someone else would have to make that call. The minister? Yes. She would rely on Mr. Hall to do it, Vicky resumed. Mr. Hall, not I, would telephone on that morning, early before his church service, if it's Sunday. Mrs. Heath will answer, and he'll say it's the telephone company making a test call, and hang up. Then he'll call again right away, and you'll hear the phone ring a second time. But when Miss Heath answers, he'll hang up without speaking, as if it was an error. And Mrs. Heath will be annoyed enough to mention the two phone calls to me. I'll be listening every morning for the phone to ring, to ring twice. Good girl, Vicky sighed. I'd, I'd much rather you fly out of here with me in the morning. It would be surer and safer. I can't. Well, the morning you hear the telephone signal, you're to meet me at the bottom at noon. Promise, Lucy? The girl took a deep breath. Promise, but I'm scared. I'll come back for you soon as I can. They whispered goodnight, and Lucy crept back into her room.